afternoon. If you check the forecast, it's supposed to be in the 60s tomorrow. So Pastor Hayden and I were just talking. Maybe we can squeeze in one more outdoor service before the year ends. We'll see. We'll see what the temperature is next next week. Anyone go trick-or-treating yesterday? Anyone have trick-or-treaters come to your house yesterday? Okay. Just making conversation. Okay. Uh, John chapter 3, verses 22 to 36. The title of the sermon is, He Must Increase, I Must Decrease. He must increase, I must decrease. John 3, 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now, a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given from given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom, who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly, at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, his jo this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives a spirit without measure. The Father loves a son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for your word. We thank you that your word guides us as a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. It helps us to know how to live for you and to please you as we live our lives with an attitude of fear and trembling before you. Uh, speak to us through your word. Address the, the attitudes of our hearts. Help us to see Jesus, that we might have life in him. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The past few weeks, as we study the Gospel of John, John has been laying out for us different ways that Jesus is greater, different ways that Jesus fulfills the Old Testament and in some of those ways, how he surpasses what was talked about in the Old Testament. And so, for example, we saw how the purification rites of the Old Testament were replaced by the new wine in Jesus Christ. We saw the temple, the Old Testament temple, being replaced by the new and better meeting point with God 
through the temple of Jesus Christ. And last week we saw the, the new birth through the Son being lifted up on the cross. And now this passage shows us another um, new thing that Jesus brings that's better. Shows us how Jesus surpasses the baptism of John the Baptist. And again, through these things, John is saying, these are reasons to believe in Jesus. Yet another reason that explains who Jesus is and reason to believe in Jesus. And so we'll see that through this text. First, the friend of the bridegroom. Two main points today. First, the friend of the bridegroom. This text begins by telling us that the people were, were still coming to, G, to John the Baptist to be baptized, even though Jesus' ministry began, but people are still coming to John the Baptist to be baptized. And so John the Baptist was still baptizing, and now Jesus was also baptizing. More specifically, not Jesus, but his disciples were baptizing. Okay, so John the Baptist baptizing, Jesus, his camp baptizing. And so now John the Baptist's disciples come to John and complain about this. They're complaining about Jesus. Again, verse 26, they came to John, said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. And the way they phrase their statement indicates that they, they weren't pleased with this. They didn't think too highly of what Jesus was doing. They say, he who was with you, to whom you bore witness, so it's as if they're saying, you supported him, right? Even before people knew about him, you're the one that vouched for him. You gave him his start in ministry. He was with you. And now he's baptizing too. And not only that, more people are going to him now than they are coming to us. So they come to John the Baptist complaining that Jesus' ministry is... is uh, overlapping or overshadowing theirs. I mean, I guess we can kind of think of it in this way. Let's say something like this happened at CLC. Like, I was here initially, and then Pastor Aiden came. But then let's say, you know, gradually, like, more people are drawn to Pastor Aiden. And he eventually starts a new church over in Dinkytown. So now, like, more people are going to his church you know, because like he smiles more, right? Like he's more sensitive to people's feelings and he's taller. Okay. So then like that's happening and then now one of the few remaining members of CLC come to me and say, he who was with you, look, he started a church and all are going to him. So by saying this, they're asking a question without asking a question, Right? He's taking all our members. How do you feel about that? What are you going to do about it? And that's exactly what's going on here. All are going to him to be baptized. How do you feel about that? And now, as I present this to John the Baptist, like how will he respond now? Will he see Jesus as his competition? By the way, if, if that ever happened, uh, with Pastor Aiden, like we will support him 110%, right? Like we will support his church financially. We will even have an altar call weekly asking for more and more people to volunteer 
to go and start the church with him. But anyway, how will John the Baptist respond to this? Verse 27, John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John responds with kind of like a saying, like a common saying. So he says something like, Everything good comes from from above. Something like that. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's given him from heaven. So John first recognizes that God is the orchestrator of, of these events. He realizes that this isn't happening because of other factors, right? Like Jesus is more charismatic or like he he himself like dresses weird or he eats locusts or something like that. That's why more people are going to Jesus. It's not any of those things. He recognized that this is happening because both John and Jesus were given their roles from heaven. And then he uses this analogy in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. John probably knew the Old Testament scriptures that portrayed Israel as the bride of the Lord. For example, Isaiah chapter 62, verse 5 says, And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Israel is the bride of the Lord. So now John is saying, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the bridegroom. I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. So he stands aside, makes room for the bridegroom to shine. But even as he stands aside for Jesus, so that Jesus could be front and center, he does not do this reluctantly. It says he rejoices greatly. So he has great joy in seeing Jesus' ministry grow. Because this is what he had been waiting for. This is what he was working for and what he was had been working for finally came to be. Jesus is being recognized. So he says, this joy of mine is now complete. I heard a preacher share a story about, about two men who proposed to the same woman at around the same time. She said yes to one, and then the other guy who she didn't say yes to ended up being the best man at their wedding. So he didn't get the girl, but he was happy to support his two best friends, and he rejoiced in their joy. That's what's going on here. John the Baptist rejoices greatly in his support of Jesus. Can you imagine a wedding where the best man thinks he's the main show, right? I mean, think about it. You know how Western weddings go? The the music starts, the bride enters the sanctuary and she's walking slowly down the aisle. Her eyes are fixed on the groom as all eyes are fixed on her. 
And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the best man starts clapping really loud. And he starts yelling, Woo! That's what I'm talking about! And he does that to draw attention to himself. And then he continues that at the reception, you know? He does his best trying to get into every picture with the bride and groom. And he even interrupts the groom in the middle of the first dance, asking if he can now dance with the bride. If that ever happened, that's not only a bad friend, that would, that would just actually be very wrong. He thinks he's more important than the, than the groom. He thinks it's about him. And now we read about John the Baptist and his attitude and being willing to step aside for Jesus. And we, we read that and we go, oh, of course. Of course John had that attitude because that was his purpose, right? He was sent by God to prepare the way for the Lord. He knew his role before God, the role that God had given him. But the thing is, we also, we also know the role that we're supposed to play. We're also supposed to point the way to Jesus so that Jesus gets all the glory. But too often we act like life is about me. For example, God sends difficulties into our lives. And through that, God is basically saying, this is the role I've assigned for you. That as you go through this difficulty, my son will be glorified through your suffering, through your perseverance, my sun will shine through your life. But in those circumstances, rejoicing in that calling is the last thing in our minds because we don't want any part of an assignment like that. Because again, in my eyes, as I realistically go through my life, my life is really about me. You see, too often, we're the friend of the bridegroom trying to upstage the bridegroom. And then John the Baptist says in verse 30, he must increase, but I must decrease. When he says he must, he must means this has to happen. This has to happen because this is the will of God. He must. This is how it has to be for God's purpose to be fulfilled. He must increase, but I must decrease. Most of the time, we don't have a problem with that first part, right? He must increase. Of course, he must increase. But it's that second part that we have a problem with. We think he must increase, but I must increase also. But in order for Jesus to increase, I must decrease. Congratulations to the to the. Los Angeles Dodgers and all the Dodgers fans that don't exist in our church. The Dodgers finally won the World Series and I'm especially happy. I'm, I was actually pulling for the Rays, to be honest, but I'm happy that the Dodgers won because I'm especially happy for Clayton Kershaw finally got his World Series ring. Uh, Kershaw is the, the star pitcher for the Dodgers and he also happens to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And I started cheering for him a few years back after I saw a video of him sharing his testimony 
And that video series, um, it's part of a series called I Am Second. I Am Second is a video series or movement, you can find it online, of Christian celebrities sharing how Jesus has changed their lives. And it's called I Am Second because even though these are world-class athletes and performers who strive to be the very best in what they do in their field, they want to be, they're competing, practicing, giving their all to be number one in their field. But still, their message is, I am second because I seek to put Jesus Christ first. That's the question this text is asking us. Are you willing to put Jesus Christ first? Usually when we ask that question, right? So even now, are you willing to put Jesus Christ first? Like we don't really think too deeply about that, you know? Like automatically we think, oh yeah, sure, of course, I think so. But God is actually asking us that question every day in very practical ways. For example, are you willing to put Jesus first above your husband or wife? And again, like to that question, we might say, yes, of course. But another way that we can ask that question, same question, is do you want your husband or your wife to put Jesus before you? Like, do you really want that? Do you really want your spouse, their main pursuit to be Jesus over you? So that your spouse loves Jesus far more than they love you so that your lives together is really about what God wants. Really about what God wants and not about what you want. Are you willing to put Jesus first above your child? And again, that's kind of like a, almost like a theoretical question that we just automatically say yes to. But again, can ask it another way. Do you want your children to put Jesus first before you? That means there might be some things that, that you want for your child that they'll never have because they put Jesus first. For your child to put Jesus first could likely mean that they won't have the best education that you want for them or the best job that you might wish for them. That they might go through more difficulties and more challenges in their lives because they chose a path to put Jesus first. Do you really want your children to put Jesus first before you? Are you willing to put Jesus first above the pursuit of that special someone in your life? Or again, you can ask that question in a different way. Do you want Jesus to put you first over your pursuit of that special someone in your life? Do you really want Jesus to work out his plan in your life, even at the cost of the desires of your own heart? That's what John the Baptist means when he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. Pray that that would be our hearts as well. Secondly, just two points. Secondly, 
the testimony from above. The testimony from above. Okay, so uh, the structure is similar to what we saw last week. Last week's passage, we saw Jesus talking to Nicodemus, right? And then even though in NIV and ESV, the red letters continued, but starting from John 3.16 was actually John, the gospel writer, his commentary about what just happened, right? Similarly here, so far it's been John the Baptist talking, but now the rest of this passage is John the gospel writer interjecting his commentary. So the rest of this passage is from John the gospel writer. Verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. So John, the gospel writer, is basically saying that Jesus is greater. He's saying that John the Baptist was right to have the attitude that he did, stepping aside for Jesus, because Jesus is greater. He's greater in this way. John the Baptist called people to repentance and baptized with water. But Jesus Christ doesn't just call people to repentance. He actually accomplishes forgiveness and baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So as heaven is greater than the earth, Jesus who comes from heaven is above all. Then he says in verse 32, He who is from heaven, Jesus, bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. So now John is saying, because Jesus is greater, because Jesus is above all, we should receive his testimony. We should receive his word. He comes from heaven, and he's telling us what we need to know. So we need to believe him. That's what he says. And now follow John's logic here. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God. Verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son, whoever does not obey the Son, shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. What is John saying here? Remember, John is writing this gospel, bottom line, so that people would know who Jesus is, and so that people would believe in the name of Jesus Christ. And that's what he's doing here. His argument goes like this. Jesus comes from heaven and brings to us the words of God. So, if we believe Jesus, if we believe the testimony, of Jesus, if we believe what Jesus says, then we're saying that God is true. If we don't believe in Jesus, we're saying that God is not true. Now, how can we tell if we believe in Jesus? Right? Verse 36 says, whoever believes in the Son, and then he contrasts that to whoever does not obey the Son. Whoever believes the Son, whoever does not obey the Son. So we know if we believe in Jesus or not by the obedience or the disobedience of our lives. It's kind of like this. Um, our oldest is driving now. <laughs> he has his driver's permit, so I'm driving with him. Now, because he's a new driver, we're, look, we're like looking at every sign on the road, right? And talking about what that sign means. Let's say, for example, you see a speed bump sign on the road. Now, there are two ways that you can approach that. You see the sign and think, 
oh, there's a speed bump coming up. So even though you don't see the bump yourself right now, you slow down because you saw the sign. That's one way. Or see the sign, but you don't see the bump. So you keep going fast. You keep going fast and then And you hit, hit the bump really hard. Maybe even like hit your head on the, the top of the car. You see, that's the difference between believing and disobedience. When we don't believe, we're choosing to trust ourselves, right? I see the sign, but I don't see the bump. So I'm going to disobey the sign because I don't see the bump. Because I trust my eyes. That's exactly what we're doing when we indulge in temptation, when we live for the world, when we pursue idols. I know what the sign says, but I don't see the consequences. So I'm going to ignore the sign and just trust my eyes because with my eyes, I see the immediate pleasures before me. But when we believe... We're choosing to trust in someone, someone else, someone other than ourselves. I don't see the bump, but I know someone put that sign there. Because, and they put that sign there because they saw the bump with their eyes. So I'm going to believe that person who put the sign there and slow down. You see what, what we're saying here? How do we know if we believe in the testimony of the son? We live by his words. How do we know that I don't believe in his testimony? No, that can't be true. That can't be right. We disregard his words. We don't obey the words of the Son. And John says here, those who believe in Jesus, he has eternal life. Those who don't believe, it says the wrath of God remains on him. To the person who lives his life continually ignoring the testimony of the son, choosing to trust himself, God says, okay, fine, have it your way. You insist on trusting yourself, go ahead. And he leaves us alone and lets us have our way. But it turns out it's not just a speed bump that's ahead. It's actually a collapsed bridge. The consequence of trusting myself and disobeying the Son is eternal condemnation under the wrath of God. Meaning there is no salvation in ourselves when we choose to trust our own eyes. So John gives us a very logical reason here to believe in Jesus. He says, life is not about you. So step aside and make way for the bridegroom. Trust in him who brings us God's word from heaven. Because only then, as we trust in the testimony of the Son, who brings the very words of God into our hearts, only then will we, will we be saved from the wrath of God to eternal life. Let's pray together.
Let's just pray for a moment and uh, just even reflect on our own hearts and our attitudes of um, wanting to outshine the bridegroom in our own hearts, uh, attitude that we have, uh, wanting to be front and center, uh, wanting, thinking that life is about me, trusting in my own eyes, taking life into my own hands. Let's just contemplate some of the ways that we have tendencies to do these things and repent before God and allow the the word of God to pierce our hearts uh, because the word seems to be saying to us there are eternal consequences to that kind of attitude. Uh, the life that he's offering through the Son of God is free for us if we would simply relinquish, step aside, allow the bridegroom to be front, front and center. and choose to trust in the words of Jesus. Let's just pray for a moment before we close our worship together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We thank you that you deliver us from wrath by your grace. We thank you that you save us from ourselves and our tendency to want to take on that role thank you that we can always uh, cling on to you uh, every time that we fail and fall your grace never ends uh, strengthen us with your word and help us to believe in the testimony of the son um, help us to relinquish control and um, and, um, and by your grace by your promise uh, receive eternal life. Uh, thank you, Lord, for your grace in our lives. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, this incredible, unchanging covenant love of the Father God, and the fellowship and the strength, the power of the Holy Spirit be with you, both now and forever.